On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. We are in our Meaningless Life Bible study looking at Ecclesiastes today. It's uh, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Misery in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. One of my, if not my favorite books of the Bible is Ecclesiastes, in part because it is so altogether different in tone than the rest of the Bible. And I think, I think I know why. I'll start with a story. In uh, school, I was really bad at math. Horrible, awful, terrible at math. I don't know what subjects you were good at. Math was definitely not one for me. On the rare occasion that I would get the right answer, and yes, you could add that to Jesus' list of miracles. On the rare occasion that I actually got the right answer to some math equation, invariably, my grade would be marked down because even if I somehow got the right answer, I didn't show my math well. Uh, My math was convoluted or I did it in my head and I didn't know how to get it down on paper. And the teachers would mark me down because they don't want you to just get the right answers, but they also want to see that you understand how you got that answer and why that answer is right. Well, I don't know if my math teachers ever read the Bible, but if they did, I think they would have really enjoyed Ecclesiastes. Here's why. It's a book that shows us the math for the rest of the Bible. If you read the Bible, it gives you conclusions, answers, such as, Life apart from God is not uh, the best possible life that you could enjoy. That, that life with God uh, is more satisfying. That, that life is short. That there's no time to waste. That your relationship with God and that infusing and informing all of your life is the best way to live both now and into eternity. Those are the kind of answers that the Bible gives us. But the question is, Uh, Can I see the math? Uh, How did the Bible arrive at this answer? Why does the Bible arrive at this answer? And what I love about Ecclesiastes, and I think my math teachers would have enjoyed it as well, is Ecclesiastes is where we get to see the how and the why. As history's wisest fool, the great King Solomon, shows us the math at how he arrived at his conclusion, his answers regarding the meaning, the value, the purpose of life. And so we'll start today uh, looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, in the pursuit of happiness. And again here, Solomon is painfully, slowly, uh, methodically, intentionally uh, bringing us to a conclusion that anything or everything apart from God is meaningless. It's hopeless. It's worthless. It's purposeless. He says it this way. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the quote-unquote good things in life. And here's his conclusion. But I found that this too was meaningless. Now, I'm blessed to live in a nation that is in large part an experiment in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Basically, we all want to be happy, and so we live solely for the pursuit of pleasure. And philosophers will call this hedonism. Uh, Curiously, the experiment is not going that well. Like the great King Solomon, history's wisest fool, uh, we live in lavish, luxurious lives in comparison to how others in history have lived before us and the way that those around the world still live today. Our quality of life is higher, um, but our contentment in life is lower. 
in fact, yet if not most, at least many people are both stressed and depressed. Why? Why? Why living in uh, one of the most prosperous nations in the history of the world, and if you don't think we've got it pretty good, go to a third world country and just compare. Why is it that the experiment in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness ends up being painful, brutal, and awful? That, that the lives that we are living seeking joy provide grief. That, that what we enjoy invariably enslaves us and disappoints us. Why, why is it that we're coming? How is it that we're coming to the same conclusion as Solomon? And those of us at varying levels below Solomon on the food chain, we tend to cling to the myth that if we could trade places with him, that we would be happy and satisfied and joyful. If I had his palace instead of my apartment, if I had his fleet of horse-drawn carriages instead of my bus pass, if, if I had his thousand wives plus concubines, I would have a more satisfying, invigorating personal life. However, the parade of history from Jim Morrison to Jimi Hendrix, Elvis Presley, and Kurt Cobain all sing the same song as Solomon. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. And what's curious as well, as we're looking at Ecclesiastes and the life experiment of history's wisest fool, is that we can spend much of our life worried that what we hate will destroy us. We fear that someone or something that we do not enjoy will overtake us and ruin us and ruin our life. The, the truth is, what we love is more likely to destroy us than what we hate. The things that we give ourselves to gladly, such as comfort, food, sex, power, money, loved ones, work, and pleasure, end up ruining us rather than satisfying us. This, this is the conclusion of the Bible. And in Ecclesiastes, the great King Solomon shows us the math. Here's how he arrived at this conclusion. Here's why we know that he got the answer right. As king, he ruled with complete authority. No one in his kingdom would dare tell him no, he lacked no resource of any kind. Now, just conceive, imagine, fathom, if you will, for a brief moment that there was no limitation between any of your desires and your experience. What would your life be like if anything and anyone you wanted could be yours without any restriction? No limitation, no inhibition, no prohibition. What would that be? That was the life of Solomon. And before showing us the math, he also gives us the answer that life lived selfishly and independently without God is meaningless. Depending upon your English translation, we've established that he'll use that word some 38 times to describe life. Meaningless, 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 meaningless. And what we tend and try to do is find things to make life meaningful. Well, what about sex? What about fame? What about power? What about money? What about relationships? What about pets? What about leisure? What about travel? What about education? What about hobbies? What about fill in the blank? And so he tried it all. And we try to create meaning in life by feeding our darkest fantasies only to find that it's like attempting to make a snowman out of pudding in the blistering sun of a hot summer day. You can go to college and get a degree in pudding stacking. You can actually get good grades, join the honor roll, rally together a few friends who think 
you and they have discovered a way to finally do it once and for all. You can read books from theorists at universities with more degrees than Fahrenheit, educated beyond their intelligence, telling you how it can be done. You could work every day for the rest of your life. And all you'll do is come to the same conclusion as everyone else, that you wasted both your time and your pudding. Life apart from God is like that. That's what Solomon has already told us is life under the sun. It's life apart from God. Now, in hearing this, invariably, some of you, some of us, or at least some of the time, we won't agree with the answer. And what Solomon kindly does for us is in the remainder of the chapter, he's just given us in chapter two, verse one of Ecclesiastes, the answer. Life apart from God is meaningless. And now he shows us the math. And so he's going to have this long list of things that, that he tried that you and I similarly attempt to make life meaningful, valuable, purposeful. He starts with comedy in chapter two, verse two. He says, quote, so I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? And there is an old adage that says that laughter is the best medicine. And to some degree, that's true. There is so much to worry about in this life that sometimes the best thing to do is to lighten up, have some fun, blow off some steam, and have a good time. Honestly, it's one of the things that attracted to me to my best friend slash wife. A glorious laugh. And if I say something ridiculous, intentionally or unintentionally, she has a beautiful, glorious, liberated, enormous laugh, and I love it. Who doesn't like a good laugh? Who doesn't like somebody with a sense of humor? This is why there will always be a place for stand-up comedians, funny television shows, you know, slapstick movies, gut-busting internet clips, late-night talk show hosts, and friends who know how to tell a good story or maybe even a joke. And for the record, I am for fun. I think that eternity in heaven with God will be fun, that we'll laugh, and that it'll be a real sense of relief. I don't think that heaven is like an eternal trip to the dentist. And as an aside, I think one of the most amazing things you can ever hear is the deep, uncontrolled, belly chuckle of a baby. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever seen a little kid just lose it? Like a little baby just pudgy, chubby, rolls up the thighs and they, for some reason, get to the point where they can start laughing and they just lose it and they can't control themselves. I think that that is one of the most amazing sounds in the history of the world. And I believe that since God is a father, I, I, I assume that he feels the same way when we, his children, let loose with a deep chuckle from the soul in joy and in relief. Because let's just be honest, sometimes life is overwhelming, it's stressful, it's exhausting, it's confusing, it's mortifying, and laughter can be a real relief. But here's the question, is comedy, frivolity, and hilarity enough to make life meaningful? Solomon's answer is no. No. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the funniest people live the darkest lives? Some even take their own lives. If you think about it, some of the greatest comedians of the modern era, they have been haunted by their own darkness, their own demons. Some make everyone laugh and struggle with their own misery and pain. Some of my favorite comedians, I grew up as a non-Christian listening to Christian, to, to comedians rather. I didn't listen to Christians. I listened to comedians, comedians I shouldn't have been listening to, but even some of the comedians that I would have enjoyed as a non-Christian growing up, they, a lot of them, kill themselves. 
here's why comedy can be good relief from life, but it's not the meaning of life. It's, it's a diversion. There's an old Christian philosopher. He's one of my favorites. His name is Blaise Pascal. I gave one of my kids the middle name Blaise in tribute to him. And he was just flat out brilliant and sadly died before he could finish his magnum opus work on the meaning of life. He was sort of venturing down the same trail as Solomon. And so what he did is he would scratch out various thoughts on pieces of paper and he would leave them in the pocket of his coat and other places. And after he died, those were collected and they're called the ponces, which just means thoughts. And these are like little fortune cookie thoughts that would have triggered his mind to continue to work out these theories regarding the meaning of life that he was considering as a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, brilliant Christian. But even his rough draft fleeting thoughts are incredibly profound. And one thing that he speaks of repeatedly is what he calls diversions. And what diversions are, these are things that we use to divert our focus from the pain and problems of life to keep us from losing all hope and going completely dark. And diversions are not bad things, but they serve more to keep us from focusing too much on the seemingly meaningless nature of life than making life meaningful. So for example, if after a long hard day at work, you come home, turn on the television and look for some brainless comedy that's a diversion from life, but that's not the meaning of life. Do you get it? And so it's not a bad thing, but it's not the central thing. It's something that gives us relief from life, but not meaning for life. That's comedy. Moving on, he tried alcohol. How many of you have tried this? He says in chapter two, verse three, after much thought, so he actually sat down and like a researcher considered, okay, what do people do to make life better? What do they do to make life meaningful, valuable, purposeful? What do they do? He said, I know what they do. They go to the bar, they go to the liquor cabinet. He says, after much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. Don't know if it was red wine, don't know if it was white wine, King Solomon, probably not out of a box, probably really nice wine. And he says, while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. What he says is you look around, a lot of people are really, really sad and they're lonely and they're hurting. And so what do they do? They get together, they have a few drinks, they lighten up, and it looks like from the outside, they're having a really, really, really good time. That their, their life has gotten uh, better, right? Isn't that all of the beer ads on TV, everybody's together, everybody's smiling, everybody's happy. And he tells us that he, he only enjoyed the finest of wines and and just think of this, this is, this is like a 3,000 year old ridiculous hip hop video. I always find it interesting somehow in uh, various rap and hip hop videos, uh, the artists will dress up like kings and they'll sit on thrones and then they'll drink from, you know, fine cups, only the greatest of beverages to show their wealth and their prominence and their little kingdom where they rule as kings. Well. They're all court jesters compared to King Solomon. First Kings 10, 21 says, quote, all of King Solomon's drinking cups were solid gold, as well as the utensils in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. They got to denote which palace, because this dude collected uh, palaces like you and I collect socks. He says, uh, they were not made of silver for silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. Can you imagine having so much loot that somebody brings you silver and you're like, it's worthless to me. It is, it is not even of significant enough value for me to consider it for my fork or my coffee mug or my beer stein or my wine glass. I only use gold, all gold, only gold, all the time. My forks are gold, my 
spoons are gold, my cups are gold, and you bring me the best wine while I sit here on my throne, and you bring it in my gold favorite cup. How about you? What's your favorite cup? What's your favorite beverage? Maybe you're a teetotaler. Maybe you've had alcohol problems in your past, and so now you're tea, coffee. That's fine, too. We tend to comfort ourselves with beverages. How about the rest of you? Is your drink of choice, is it wine, tequila, champagne? You like vodka, beer, scotch, whiskey, sake, rum, gin? Something else? Somebody say, no, I'm not into that. I'm into fresh squeezed juice. Well, you're going to outlive all the other guys, and that's fine too. What do you like to drink, Mr. Milkshake? What do you like to drink? And here's the big idea that we tend to use beverages to give us diversion from life, to give us a little pleasure in life, to make life meaningful, valuable, purposeful, a good cup of coffee, freshly brewed cup of tea, a freshly squeezed juice, a great glass of wine that's perfectly paired with the meal. Whiskey, neat, on the rocks, with water. A nice cold beer on a long, hot day. What's your thing? Now, imagine that money was no object. And it's even hard to conceive. When you're a little kid, um, you just throw out this word infinity. Infinity means, I don't know, lots. So imagine that your budget was infinity. And you could consume your favorite drink and your favorite food without any regard to cost. That'd be pretty great, right? I mean, that'd make life pretty awesome. He says, no, it's meaningless. Again, because alcohol can be a diversion from life, but it's not the meaning of life. We can eat and drink to the glory of God, but when we eat and drink apart from God, it's not glorious. All of a sudden, it becomes addiction and confusion. And there's nobody who has overconsumed while hugging the toilet bowl, shouted out, I found the meaning of life. Here it is. I'm now satisfied. So he moves on to real estate. Do you like real estate? He says this, chapter two, verses four, five, and six. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes. How big's your house? You wish you had a bigger house? for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. He doesn't just have a yard. Here's what he says. I mean, some of us, some of you, you don't have a yard. You got like a planter on your deck at the condo. Some of you have got a yard or at least what used to be a yard. Some of you work really hard and you've actually got something that looks like a yard. Here's what he says. Verse five, I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. This dude's in the desert building orchards and parks and gardens. Now, in in 1 Kings 7, 1 through 12, the Bible reports that the construction of Solomon's palace took around 13 years. So this dude, without any limitation in resources, I mean, his personal staff was 10, 20, 30,000. I mean, you're talking, he's the king with unlimited resources. His home took 13 years to build. Now, sit down. This is going to blow your mind. He also oversaw the construction of the temple where the presence of God dwelt and people would come to worship. It took him 13 years to build his house. It took him only seven years to build the temple. Here's what it tells you. 
right? That, that the place that he dwells is probably bigger, cooler, better, badder, fatter than the place where God's glory dwelt. That's quite a house. I mean, this is a guy who, he would look at the White House and consider it an outhouse. That's his house. And it says that his home was made of cedar and large hewn stones patterned after the temple. His palace, he had multiple palaces, but we're talking about the one palace here. It included something to call, called the Hall of Justice, which sounds pretty awesome. If you're one of those Marvel comic collectors, wouldn't you like to have your own hall of justice? It, it must have been a massive estate that he oversaw because between his wives and his concubines, you may remember, that was a thousand women. Plus the children, plus the staff of servants. Can you imagine? I mean, he's got a small city just for his family. Now, consider for a moment the most beautiful, wonderful, perfectly designed homes, parks, gardens, orchards that you've ever seen. I'll tell you the first one that comes to mind. Uh, it was a vineyard. I was a young pastor, maybe late 20s, early 30s. And a couple asked me to come officiate their wedding in Napa Valley, California, wine country. And... They were kind enough to allow me to bring my wife, Grace, and uh, our daughter, Ashley, and she was very little at the time. She's now, it's crazy, she's graduating and heading off to college soon, but she was a little girl at the time, and I could still remember it was a glorious, glorious vineyard that had this majestic um, sort of bed and breakfast and restaurant, and that it overlooked uh, this lush valley, and it was sunset in the springtime, and it was warm out, and it was the golden hour. And if you're into film or video, you know that the golden hour is that certain time of day when it's clear that, that the lighting is just perfect, and everything is alive, and the sun illuminates it with this golden hue. And it was the golden hour. And I remember that I was dressed up and my beautiful little girl had her hair in a ponytail and she was dressed up in a little dress. And uh, I held her hand and we went for a walk through the vineyard. And we both took our shoes off and we went barefoot and we held hands and we just visited. And you could hear the birds chirping and the warmth of the sun. And I felt my little girl's tiny hand holding mine and I thought, this is the most glorious place on earth. I wonder if this isn't what it felt like to walk with the Lord in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden, where, where Adam and Eve were the children of God and their, their father walked with them. That is all that Solomon ever experienced. And those kinds of gardens and homes and orchards and parks, they weren't for the public. They were exclusively for him. Now, now imagine that you owned every one of the most magnificent, majestic, mind-blowing homes, parks, gardens, orchards, vineyards that you've ever seen. You owned every one of them and you had an unlimited staff to perfectly maintain them and that no one else could see them or enjoy them. They were solely for your pleasure and whomever you invited in. That was Solomon's world. He created for himself, as close as one could fathom, uh, the Garden of Eden. And, and he was an expert at 
urban planning and development and architecture and interior design. And if you love those things, you would have loved his places. He had personal parks, lakes, rivers, orchards. 1 Kings 4.33 says he could speak with authority about all kinds of plants from the great cedar of Lebanon to the tiny hyssop that grows from cracks in a wall. He could also speak about animals, birds, small creatures, and fish. He knew how to set it all up. And it's amazing because we live in this day where there's an unending parade of television shows, websites, magazines, trade shows on home buying, remodeling, architecture, gardening, construction, interior design, all fueled for our love of place since we got kicked out of a glorious garden and have wanted to be there ever since. Now imagine that money was no object and you could live wherever you wanted to live. Where would you live? Imagine you could build any kind of home that you wanted. What would you build? Imagine you could furnish it in any way you desired. What would those furnishings be? Do you think if you had your dream home on your dream property with your dream landscaping and your dream furnishing that your life would be happy, it would be content? Imagine it's all debt free and you don't even have to clean it or cut the grass or pull the weeds. Would you be happy? Solomon says no. So he tries servants. He says, chapter two, verse seven, I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. Um, at some jobs, your employer gives you a free meal. I can still remember paying my way through college. One of the jobs I had was as a, a luggage hauler uh, at, a, at a hotel, a bellhop concierge kind of job. You're hauling people's bags. And one of the things they gave us was one free meal. So they would set up sort of a buffet in the break room and you go in and eat whatever they cooked that day. Well, Solomon fed all of his employees, all of their meals, because they were part of his estate. In 1 Kings 4, 22 through 23, we read that quote, the daily food, daily, think of this, for those of you who are cooks, chefs, event planners, caterers, restaurant owners. The daily food requirements for Solomon's palace, this is his staff, were 150 bushels of choice flour, 300 bushels of meal, also 10 oxen from the fattening pens, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep or goats, as well as deer, gazelle, roe deer, and choice poultry. That's what the Bible says. Various Bible commentators have tried to figure out, like, how many people are you feeding if that's what is on the daily menu? And this, friends, is his personal staff. They live to meet his whims, his wants. And they say, the commentators do, that this would have fed anywhere from 10 to 30,000 people. Next time you go to a major sporting event, look around and say, this is what a staff meeting looked like at Solomon's house. And, and we can get jealous, but let's just consider that we have our own version of this luxury. I mean, technology allows us today to turn up the thermostat rather than chop our wood, to turn the faucet rather than hauling our water home in a bucket from a well miles away, and electricity powers our tools so we don't have to do everything by manual labor, in addition, we have appliances that do what servants used to do. They wash our clothes, they clean our dishes, they microwave our food, they vacuum our floors. Also in a service-based economy, we've got landscapers and housekeepers and personal assistants, grocery store baggers, baristas, bankers, and the like as our own army of personal service. Add to this everything from fast food to automobiles, online shopping, cell phones, big screen TVs, refrigerators, airplanes, laptops, Wi-Fi, and ladies and gentlemen, it's official, we're kings and queens. What if there was no limit to the people you could hire to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, only do whatever you desired? Would that make your life meaningful, valuable, purposeful? The answer, he says, is no. Again, he's showing us the math. And the truth is, we don't believe the answer and we struggle to believe the math. 
He tries animals. Do you love animals? Chapter two, verse seven, Ecclesiastes, he says, I also owned large herds and flocks more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. In the ancient world, wealth and power was often held in the animals someone owned. And that day, animals were used for everything from food to labor and transportation. You got a dog you love? Cat you love? You got a horse you love? Are there animals you wish you could have? When you go to the zoo, do you think to yourself, I wish I had my own personal private zoo. That's what Solomon had. And, and his personal ranch, it's unfathomable. Here's what 1 Kings 4.26 says. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for his chariot horses. Four, 4,000 stalls for his chariot horses. And he had 12,000 horses, 12,000 horses. 1 Kings 10.26 says, Solomon built up huge, a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000. Here's just his ranch. You ever been to a ranch? Some of you are going to listen to this. You're in Texas or somewhere in the Middle East, or you're like one of my relatives. They've got the big fjord horses, and they are sort of big, powerful horses that can uh, pull a sleigh or a carriage. 4,000 stalls, 12,000 horses, 1,400 chariots. Not only that, these were the most rare and valuable horses on the earth. First Kings 10, 28, 29 says, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Cilicia at the standard price at the time. At that time, rather, chariots from Egypt could be purchased for 600 pieces of silver and horses for 150 pieces of silver. Okay, again, I told you at the beginning, I'm, I'm not good at math. But... If I did my math right, Solomon's personal chariots were valued at 840,000 pieces of silver. Not dollars, pieces of silver. So get 840 chunks of silver and bring them and throw them into a pile until they're a mountain. That's what he paid for his chariots. And his personal horses were valued at 1.8 million pieces of silver. This doesn't include all the other animals that he gets, these are just the horses. Now, imagine you could have any and every animal you wanted, your own personal series of zoos with exotic animals from around the world. Imagine the San Diego Zoo wasn't the San Diego Zoo, it was your backyard, and you were the only one who got to go. If you like hunting, imagine your own private hunting reserves stocked with animals imported from around the world. They solely existed for you to hunt at your pleasure. Imagine enough pedigreed horses in your stables that you could ride a different horse every day for 32 plus years. If pets are your thing, consider purebred dogs, cats, horses, whatever else you like. Pick the most exotic animals that you would love to have trained as a pet. Cared for and trained by the best experts on the earth. You don't even have to scoop after them. Glory. In addition, consider having an unlimited budget. This would be like today. So chariots are kind of like our version of a car. Imagine that you had... 1,400 cars, your personal automotive collection, mint condition, fleet of mechanics and detailers. You can ride anyone at any time. How many of you are car guys or gals? One of the things I like to do is uh, take my kids to car shows. My, my brother, my dad, they're totally good with a wrench. I didn't get that. Growing up, there was always, we had one garage and there was always a car in there getting worked on. My brother drag races. My uncle growing up did stock car racing. My dad right now is uh, rebuilding from the frame up a 1955 Chevy. Yes. And it, it's, it's, it's going to be amazing. 
We like cars. I like cars. Can't work on them. But I love going to car shows and seeing the most amazing vehicles. There's a car show I took my youngest daughter to. It's like a year or so ago. And for some reason, the other kids didn't want to go. It was a sunny day. So I took my youngest daughter and uh, we went around looking at the cars and we were both just blown away. The artistry, the majesty, the glory of these cars, uh, antiques and vintage and imported and muscle cars. And of course, my youngest daughter, she liked the uh, Roadrun, the Pontiac Roadrunner cars. Of all things, my, my daughter likes classic vintage Pontiac muscle cars. Um, and she liked the Roadrunner ones because you hit the horn and beep, beep, makes a little Roadrunner noise. That's their version of chariots. Or I should say that's our version of chariots and that's our version of horsepower. Well, imagine that this was all yours. Would this improve your internal quality of life, all of these external enjoyments? Solomon says no. Now, what about money? <laughs> money seems like it can fix almost anything, right? What if you had not just a little more money, but an unlimited amount of money? Here's what Solomon says in chapter two, verse eight of Ecclesiastes. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. In that day, your wealth was collected in your silver and your gold. And so here's what we learned. Solomon never made a budget, never had to keep an accounting of his money and never worried because he literally had more than he could ever spend. First Kings 10, 10 through 25. It's long, but I'll read it. Then she, the queen of Sheba, she comes to visit him. Gave the king a gift of 9,000 pounds of gold. 9,000 pounds. <laughs> Pounds of, this is one, hey, happy Tuesday. Here's the 9,000 pounds of gold. In addition to great quantities of spices and precious jewels, never again were so many spices brought in as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. In addition, uh, Haram ships brought gold from Ophir and they also brought rich cargoes of red sandalwood and precious jewels. Each year, Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. This did not include the additional revenue he received from merchants and traders, all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land. What does he do with it all? There's so much gold. The guy, the guy doesn't even know what to do with all the gold. So King Solomon, we are told, made 200 large shields of hammered gold, each weighing more than 15 pounds. He also made 300 smaller shields of hammered gold, each weighing nearly four pounds. Uh, the king's the king placed these shields in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. The king made a huge throne. Got to see this dude. Okay, he's got his next palace, 200 large, 300 smaller hammered gold shields hanging on the walls. This is quite a man cave. Amen? I mean, you're probably feeling good because you got like a Firestone old pyre sign hanging up. I'm like, look what I got. 500 gold shields, custom made. Then the king made a huge throne. Most houses, right? You got a daddy chair. Dad sits at the head of the table or dad's got his recliner. Here's Solomon's throne. The king made a huge throne decorated with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps. It takes six steps to get up into the chair and a rounded back. There were armrests on both sides of the seat. I don't know if it was a recliner with a leather, with a lever rather that you pull, but you know, you never know. And the figure of a lion stood on each side of the throne. There were also 12 other lions, one standing on each end of the six steps. No other throne in all the world can be compared with it. The king had a fleet of trading ships of Tarshish that sailed with Hiram's fleet. Once every three years, the ships returned loaded with gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. 
So King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on the earth. Year after year, everyone who visited brought him gifts of gold and silver, clothing, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. Now, the wealth of his reign was so insane that 1 Kings 10, 27 says this, the king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone and valuable cedar timber was as common as the sycamore fig trees that grow in the foothills of Judah. Got to the point where there was so much silver, they're like, I don't know, just throw it away. It's just worthless. We only use gold. And, and, the, and the amazing cedar timber, it, it was like a weed. 40 years of prosperity. Do you think that most, be honest, if not all of the problems that plague you would be alleviated if you had more money? How about unlimited riches? What if money was no object? Do you think you'd be happy, satisfied, content with your life? Solomon says, no. No. What about music? You like the arts? His experiment continues. Ecclesiastes 2.8. I heard wonderful singers, both men and women. So in addition to his possessions, he now adds experiences. This includes entertainment such as music. You like music? See, in our day, we can download music to our phone, take it with us, listen to it wherever we go. But Solomon did us one better. He owned the bands. Imagine that. Part of his staff included owning his favorite musicians and bands. I mean, just imagine that. They don't go on tour, they live at your house. And they don't have a tour schedule, they just wait for you to summon them and then they come and give you your own personal private concert just for you and whomever else you decide to invite over. Who would you, who would you have? Just imagine that. You don't, you don't just have your favorite artists on shuffle. You have them shuffle down the hall and play in your living room. If you could attend any play, sporting event, concert, other form of entertainment, what would it be? How much would you enjoy meeting your favorite actor, your actress, athlete, musician? Now, imagine that they all work for you. You could call on them at any time to perform solely for you. Who would you choose? Wouldn't that make life amazing? If at any moment you could just summon whomever you like to come out and perform whatever you wish. Solomon says no. Okay. Well, now we're ready to deploy the airbag. You ready? He's tried a lot of things. You knew he was going to get here. How about sex? Chapter 2, verse 8. He says that he had, quote, many beautiful concubines. And he says, quote, I had everything. Think about that. Everything a man could desire. Men have fantasies. Solomon had realities. When was the last time you were in a room with about a thousand people? Do you remember what that big crowd was like? Now imagine that between Solomon's wives and concubines, it was a thousand women. And ladies, you can think of having a thousand handsome go into the gym, totally into you, bachelorette times infinity kind of lifestyle as well. But imagine that a thousand people existed for one purpose. They didn't have a job to go to. They don't have other responsibilities. They have nothing else to concern themselves with. They have one job, to look their best and always be ready to do whatever you want. This is 
Hugh Hefner at a much grander level. These women lived in various palaces, and the men who served in their proximity were likely castrated to ensure that no other man had any intimate relations with any of these women. Is sex your struggle? Imagine that all of your fantasies became realities. And before we point our finger at Solomon, we need to also make sure not to overlook the three fingers pointing back at us, since in our day, technology and pornography allows us to gather a harem of a thousand in mere minutes. But in all honesty, if your sex life had no restrictions of any kind, would you find that exciting, enticing, and enjoyable? Be honest. Be honest. Solomon says, take it from me. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. The answer is no. How about fame? You get jealous of people who are successful, who are popular. He says, chapter two, verse nine, so I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. First Kings 4, 31 and 32 says that his fame spread throughout all the surrounding nations. He composed some 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. Wow. First Kings 10, 24 adds, people from every nation came to consult him and hear the wisdom that God had given him. You know what politicians need to do? Go on the road. You know what musicians need to do? Go on tour. You know how you know that you've really made it? You don't go anywhere. Everybody comes to you. Put in today's term, Solomon was a flat out rock star. Dude had serious swag. T-shirts with his face, bobbleheads, bumper stickers, action figures, fan clubs. Athletes stood in line for his autograph. I could see a franchise of theme bars, King 1000, big replica of him sitting on his throne, wearing his jeweled crown, drinking from his golden chalice, surrounded by his entourage. Dude was the first rapper. In school, little kids wrote reports about him as the person they idolized most. Every year his birthday would have been the biggest holiday, businesses and schools shut down, national parade, culminating with him riding in on a sleigh being pulled by reindeer. I'm making some of it up, but you get the picture. If you were famous, if people loved you, worshiped you, adored you, do you think your life would be better? His answer is, no. Some of you are thinking, can we get out of the gutter here? I mean, it's this, you know, sort of sleeping around, drinking too much. How about education? Well, chapter two, verse nine, he says, and my wisdom never failed me. Do you love to learn? Imagine you had no obligations like a job or household responsibilities, could devote all your energies to learning. What would it be like if you had your own massive library? at your house. You hired professors and researchers and experts in every field of your interest to come to your home and teach you everything they knew. Imagine you could travel anywhere in the world to learn anything you wanted. You not only got into the college of your choice, but you had the IQ to quickly supersede even your professors in knowledge. That's Solomon. Next to Jesus, the Bible says he's the wisest man who has ever lived in the history of the world. This is history's salutorian. 1 Kings 4, 29 through 31 speaks of Solomon's supernatural mental capacity saying, God gave Solomon very great wisdom and understanding and knowledge as vast as the sands of the seashore. In fact, his wisdom exceeded all of the wise men of the East and the wise men of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else. This dude blew the curve. 1 Kings 4.34 says he was so wise that kings from every nation sent their ambassadors to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. 
Among the most legendary, brilliant people who has ever lived is the famed Queen of Sheba. 1 Kings 10, 1 through 5 says, When the Queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, which brought honor to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She's going to put him on jeopardy. When she met with Solomon, she talked with him about everything she had on her mind. Solomon had answers for all her questions. You kidding me? You kidding me? This guy, he nailed the SAT asleep. The Bible says, quote, nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba realized how very wise Solomon was, and when she saw the palace he had built, she was overwhelmed. You know what? It doesn't take a lot to, to overwhelm most people. Like, um, you know, if you can actually copy edit effectively and know what to do with a semicolon, I'm pretty overwhelmed. When the queen of Sheba shows up just to sort of have a mental joust with you and put you in your place and she has her mind blown and is overwhelmed, you are officially a smart dude. Would you enjoy it if kings from nations of the earth came, queens from nations of the earth came to have you untangle their their knowledge knots? What if Plato, Rene Descartes, Albert Einstein, Stephen Hawking, Judith Polgar, John Calvin, Marilyn Vossavant, Terence Tao Shakespeare, Johann Wolfgang, Von Goethe, Nikola Tesla, Marie Curie, Socrates, Leonardo da Vinci, Isaac Newton, Augustine, Thomas Edison, Winston Churchill, George Washington, Martin Luther, and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart all sat around holding a number, just like they're waiting to renew their driver's license at the DMV, hoping that you'll have time to squeeze them in and answer their questions because you're smarter than they are all combined. Wow. Would you feel that your life was meaningful? Solomon says, no. How about pleasure? Just to make sure he didn't leave anything out. Chapter two, verse 10, he says this. Imagine actually being able to say this. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. This is, this is a guy off the leash. Just to make sure he didn't leave anything out, Solomon mentions a, a proverbial junk drawer here. So put into it whatever your thing is. Maybe, maybe you think, well, he didn't try this. Oh, okay, put it in. Sports, clothes, shoes, hobbies, fishing, gambling, eating, shopping, exercising, watching plays, reading books, sleeping in, traveling, art collecting, antique shopping, having kids, having grandkids, being left alone, watching TV, whatever. If there's anything on his list that he wanted to do, he did. This includes some amazing food. First Kings 10.5 says, the Queen of Sheba was amazed at the food on his tables. What if you could have anything you wanted, you lived your entire life, and at the end of your life, you could say, I denied myself no pleasure. There was never a day where I ever said no, and no one ever said no to me. I got it all, I did it all, I had it all, I tried it all. My bucket list, even the fantasies, the whims, the odd wishes and the fleeting thoughts, they're all checked off. That'd be pretty amazing, right? Solomon says, chapter two, verse 10. What about work? So you're like, well, I like my job. I don't mind going to work. I feel like I'm contributing, I'm active, I'm helping people, I'm doing good. What about work? He says, Chapter two, verse 10, Ecclesiastes, I even found great pleasure and hard work, a reward for all my labors. Just to make sure he covers all the bases, Solomon throws in a good hard day's work. After all, some people like their job, or at least putting in hours of effort at something they find worthwhile. This could even be something you do voluntarily. You coach kids sports team, 
You work on a project at the house, you serve in a ministry, you help a charity, you go on a mission trip, you're doing something that's a good thing. Wouldn't it be pretty much a perfect life if you had a job that you really loved and you woke up every morning, feet hit the floor, ready to go make a difference? He says, no. There's the math. He started chapter two, verse one, giving us the answer. He closes chapter two, verse 11, in this unit of thought, giving us the answer. Talking about meaningless, uh, meaningless misery. Chapter two, verse 11. But as I looked at everything, here's a guy at the end of his life, quite a resume. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind. You ever met somebody with a wind collection? Good luck at that. One philosopher says it's a wild goose chase with no goose. He says, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. All right, we're getting near the end. I gotta go pick up my kids at school. I'm just sitting at home today, talking to my computer. I appreciate you tuning in. We've got baseball and track tonight. Let me see if I can summarize this. Solomon basically worshiped himself, doing everything for himself and nothing for anyone else. The selfishness really drips through this report of his life project and grand study. He uses words like cheer myself, building huge homes for myself. I had everything. I became greater. Anything I wanted, I would take. It's a, it's a self-centered life, not a God-centered life, not an other-centered life. Solomon lived as a taker, not a giver. And as the center of his own universe, with everyone and everything orbiting around him, Solomon became miserable because we weren't built for that place. God's not supposed to be just first on our list, but the center of our being. Acts 20, 35 lands the dismount. It is more blessed to give than to receive. This explains why Solomon was the most miserable and why God, the God of the Bible, is the most blessed and joyful because he is the most generous giver. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Our God is a giver, not a taker. He is joyful and not joyless. He is satisfied and not dissatisfied because he lives to give. Our God is a giver and Solomon lived as a taker. And Solomon tried to find meaning in enjoying anything and everything apart from God and found it to be a meaningless waste of time. This just goes to prove, friends, and I know you don't believe me. And I tell you, there are days I struggle and strain to believe it myself. But according to history's wisest fool, showing us the math for the rest of the Bible, you can have a full fridge, a full house, a full bank account, a full social life, a full mind, a full stomach, a full liquor cabinet, a full resume, a full bedroom, a full closet, a full garage, and an empty soul. Because everything minus God is nothing, and nothing plus God is everything. And Solomon arranged every aspect of his external world so as to afford him maximum pleasure, but he never experienced enduring happiness and satisfaction because his internal condition remained sinful and the highs of life eventually fade. Meaningful, valuable, purposeful life has a lot more to do with our internal life where the Holy Spirit dwells, where the Lord Jesus redeems, than our external world of what we have and do. He painfully learned that happiness is a gift that God gives to those reconciled to him and that satisfaction only comes by being and not by having. It's more about who we are in relationship with God, 
rather than what we have in an effort to replace God. And friends, the issue is not having a little or a lot. Poverty theology will tell you that joy comes from having less. So have a garage sale and get rid of it all. Conversely, prosperity theology will tell you that joy comes with having more. So go to the mall and trust the Lord and get some stuff. And the truth is, while on the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ was poor and had very, very little. Today in his heavenly kingdom, the Lord Jesus is no longer poor, but he sits on a throne bigger than Solomon, rules over the new Jerusalem, which is greater than the old Jerusalem, with streets that Revelation reveals are paved in gold. That's a lot of extra gold. So throughout the Bible, there are joyful people who are rich and joyful people who are poor. And there are miserable people who are rich and miserable people who are poor. It's less about whether you're rich or poor and more about whether you're godly or ungodly connected to God or disconnected from God, not only enjoying the gifts, but worshiping the giver of those good gifts. And this is what Paul means saying in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. See, with wealth, you can buy many things, but one thing wealth cannot purchase is contentment. And that is precisely what Solomon lacked and why he found all his wealth only made his life meaningless because only God makes life meaningful. In the end, there's a big difference between our stuff and our satisfaction. Without God, King Solomon declares, we may have stuff, good stuff, great stuff, but as the Rolling Stones rightly declare, we can't get no satisfaction. Thanks for your time.